This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Dip a hydrophone in the warm waters of the Gulf of California just off Mexico, and if you're extremely lucky, you might hear this. So vaquitas are a very small porpoise that is very beautifully colored. It has a lovely uh, eye patch and sort of black lips. It sort of has a, a goth look to it. Barbara Taylor just retired as senior scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Southwest Fisheries Science Center. She's been studying the vaquita porpoise for decades. And yes, those are the echolocation clicks of the vaquita you just heard. The vaquita have lived in the northern waters of the Gulf of California for three million years. But humans didn't discover them until 1958. But then, from 1997 to 2005, the known vaquita population plummeted by more than 90%, forcing the vaquita porpoise into the critically endangered status on the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species. This week, Taylor announced the results of the most recent vaquita population survey. The survey estimates that there may be between 10 to 13 vaquitas still alive. But in the often heartbreaking work of wildlife conservation, where successes and failures can be measured by the sighting of a single animal, Taylor and her team consider that 10 to 13 number good news for the vaquita, because it's roughly the same number of vaquitas that were observed in previous surveys. So for a critically endangered animal, that's at least a temporary win. But how long can the vaquita's numbers remain stable? Human beings are causing their decline, of course, but not directly in this case. We do not hunt the vaquita. Instead, humans fish for a different animal, the totuaba. The totuaba is a very large fish, a little bit larger than the vaquitas themselves, actually. And they, too, are only found in the Gulf of California, and they come up right to where vaquitas are to spawn uh, every winter. And that makes them an easy target for uh, fisheries. The Totuaba fisheries are illegal. However, because the fish's swim bladder is highly coveted in China for its supposed medicinal properties, the illegal market for the Totuaba is lucrative and thriving. And that is what's threatening the vaquita porpoise, which get caught and die in the nets used to catch the totuaba. This black market illegal wildlife trade um, took off very rapidly. The way that the fishermen first started fishing totuaba was by anchoring their gill nets to the bottom with no surface marker. They could use GPS now to find where their nets were, and so they were leaving these nets down there for the entire spawning season. And that was just a death sentence for vaquitas. And it was illegal because uh, Totuaba were the first fish that was listed under the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species, uh, CITES. 
Signed in 1973, the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species, or CITES, was a landmark global agreement that allowed the international community to protect threatened plants and animals via controls and prohibitions on the wildlife trade. You might have heard of some of CITES' biggest successes, namely the ban on the ivory trade. Well, in the March of this year, CITES announced a set of sanctions on Mexico for its failure to stop the illegal totoaba trade. The sanctions would have prevented Mexico from legally exporting thousands of other animal products around the world. But just one month later, in April, CITES lifted the sanctions. By the time Barbara Taylor and her team were able to start their vaquita survey in May, they were able to get in closer to a designated zero tolerance area. It's a 12 by 24 kilometer area that Taylor describes as the last vaquita stronghold. And she was surprised by what they found. The Navy put these concrete blocks with big steel hooks that stick out about 10 feet out of the top that entangle nets into the zero tolerance area. So in 2021, on our last day, there were 117 boats with enough gill net to run end-to-end in the zero-tolerance area five times. I mean, it was a spider web of death from the perspective of a vaquita. And the Navy put in these concrete blocks, and there's been a 90, over a 90% reduction of vessels that are going into the zero-tolerance area. And you know, it's, it's just an unmitigated success. However, Barbara Taylor can't say what led the Mexican Navy to place those concrete blocks in the zero tolerance area. Is it because of years of international pressure? Is it because of those recent sanctions imposed by CITES for one month? Did they actually galvanize the Mexican government to do something? Taylor doesn't think so. In fact, She looks at CITES as being wholly ineffective when it comes to protecting the vaquita porpoise. From my perspective as a vaquita conservationist, there's been a lot of talk and not much action. When CITES first started seriously considering it, it was, you know, there were 30 vaquitas left um, and still nothing happening fast, nothing happening fast enough to make a difference Um, in conserving vaquitas. So uh, now we're down to 10-ish, and we have been since 2018. And so now it's 2023. If the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species is hoping to be effective um, in actually saving species, it's moving too slowly to really be able to deal with the current ongoing biodiversity crisis. CITES was once heralded as an international success story. But 50 years later, the wildlife extinction rate is as high as ever, and the shape of the international wildlife trade has changed dramatically, leaving CITES unable to meaningfully stop the illegal trade in some of the world's most endangered species. So you'd expect the global community to be galvanized to update CITES for a new age. But some observers note that there's almost no interest in doing that at all. Why? 
Well, joining me now is Tanya Sanrib. She's International Legal Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, and she joins us from Seattle. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk more about uh, the vaquita porpoise and what its story has to tell about the effectiveness of CITES. Um, How does CITES view uh, the porpoise's status? The same as everyone else. It's a critically endangered species. I mean, we're hovering around 10 animals, right? I mean, this is the moment in time where you pull out all of the stops to try to save a species because we don't want to lose any of our biological diversity. I think what's really interesting, though, is um, when you look at the CITES agreement, uh, it was designed to bring the international community together to address overexploitation of species through international trade. And so there is a lot of global work that happens um, collectively among different countries throughout the world. And so one of the things that's always really tricky at CITES is this issue of sanctions. It's Mm -hmm. a unique agreement because it can actually sanction um, countries. And as we saw with Mexico, it can impose drastic sanctions. I mean, suspending trade in all CITES-listed species. That's over 3,000 animals and plants from Mexico, Mm. including really lucrative products, things like crocodile skins, mahogany, um, cactus trade is huge for Mexico, as well as the pet trade, tarantulas, reptiles, everything that they trade in. Taking that camaraderie and that work together to try to address this issue of international trade and then basically kicking someone out of the club and imposing sanctions, that's really difficult for CITES parties to do. Mm -hmm. And those decisions are not made lightly. Um, And unfortunately, even in situations like the vaquita, as we saw the numbers dwindle, as Barb Taylor was saying, from 30 animals down to 10, CITES parties are still hemming and hawing. Um, do we impose sanctions on Mexico or not? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that um, CITES was trying to protect the vaquita by um, also listing the totuaba, right? So it, because the totuaba are the target of uh, the illegal trade, that was the, the tool by which the vaquita were ostensibly protected as well. Is that right? Absolutely. And Totuaba are threatened in their own right. Uh And they were originally protected under CITES because their numbers were diminishing, because um, international trade was a real threat to Totuaba. And it's in part because they are this really unique sort of prehistoric looking species with these swim bladders that are highly coveted in Asia. And unfortunately, we've seen extinction of some of the species that originally were native um, to Asia that had these swim bladders. Mm -hmm. They were literally, um, you know, caught to extinction. And so now the demand for swim bladders has turned to other parts of the world, and that included the Tatuaba. Yeah. So we've got a minute to go before our first great break, Tanya. You know, I, I take your point about um, it's not that easy for uh, countries to get together and, and use CITES to levy those heavy sanctions like they did on Mexico, but they only did so for one month. Do you have any analysis about why they lifted the the, the sanctions in, in April, just four weeks after they had levied them? Yeah, the reason sanctions were imposed is because Mexico did not have an adequate compliance plan. And 
what they did after the sanctions were imposed is they flew to Geneva and met with the CITES body to figure out what they needed to do to get the sanctions dropped. Okay, so, and Mexico committed to doing those things? Yes, and they're great at committing on paper to doing the right thing. The question's always what happens on the water for the vaquita. Right. Okay, well, Tanya Sanrib, stand by for just a moment. We are talking this hour uh, on the year of the 50th anniversary of the CITES Agreement. Whether this half-century-old effort to protect wildlife through changing the international trade in wildlife, whether it needs urgently to be updated given the current shape of that trade today. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are talking about the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, also known as CITES. It was created 50 years ago, back in 1973, and at that time heralded as a really innovative global agreement, a landmark one, in fact, to protect endangered species through the regulation of the international trade in those species. But 50 years later, there are many questions about the effectiveness of CITES and, moreover, why the international community now isn't showing much willingness at all to update CITES. Tanya Sanrib is with us today. She's the international legal director and senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, and Tanya, I'm going to return back to the what the story of the vaquita tells us in just a second. But I wanted to just um, take a step back for context here, because I think it wouldn't be an unreasonable presumption for most people if they said, well, you know, maybe in this day and age, the greatest threats to wildlife species are climate change and habitat loss. So maybe we shouldn't worry about the international trade in those species so much. Is that true or is trade still a major part of what's threatening um, these creatures? Yeah, unfortunately, exploitation, including international trade, is a major driver of species loss. We had UN scientists back in 2019 prepare a global uh, biological assessment. And it was really eye-opening um, because they determined that exploitation is the primary driver for marine species loss 
and the secondary driver, secondary to habitat loss for terrestrial species. And I think that was really surprising for a lot of people because we do tend to think of habitat loss, we tend to think of climate change. But in this window in time, before climate change really overtakes all the other drivers of extinctions, exploitation is really significant. Um, And I think that's important because it was the same thing in the 1960s and the early 70s, which is what prompted the um, original text for CITES and why countries around the world came together in 1973 to negotiate that text um, and to get the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species off the ground and running. Okay, excellent point. So a half century later, we should not let... um, Uh, habitat loss totally overshadow how much exploitation and and trade is driving the reduction in the number of um, species, uh, of of organisms in so many different species. Okay, so then that returns us to the question of, do we understand the various markets that are driving this exploitation? And is CITES equipped to to do things about it? So going back to the vaquita, I mean, obviously, there are fishermen out there laying the nets, but who's paying the fishermen? What's really who's really driving the um, uh, the, the 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 illegal fishing of the Totoaba? Yeah, and this is where trade in international. Um highly coveted species like Tatuaba swim bladders is so interesting and so fascinating, right? Because you have this significant demand in Asia for the swim bladders. Um, And in part, some of that demand is just is the wealth to show that you're able to acquire this illegal um, animal part, right? And you can, a lot of people stockpile it as a way of showing their wealth. It's, it's used in soups. It's used for other means as well. But how do you address that demand. And that's one of the things to my mind that I think is really critical about CITES and why it's such an important agreement. It was designed not just to deal with how we originally acquired those animals, how we exploit them to put them into international trade, but also to bring in those consumer countries Mm -hmm. um, and for them to work not only on ensuring that those those bans, so we have this commercial trade ban for Tatuava that's in place under CITES, to ensure that that's enforced, but also to do work um, such as demand reduction to educate the public so they understand why we shouldn't be using these swim bladders from, you know, in, from Tatuaba, in part because of the impacts it has on Vaquita. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about the consumer countries a little bit later in the show, but I, I want to start really painting the picture of, of uh, the syndicates around the world that are um, very active. These are illegal markets we're talking about, right? So in Mexico, is it cartels? Absolutely. Tell me more. Yeah. And, you know, I think stepping back, if you look globally at crime, um, obviously trafficking in drugs, trafficking in guns, trafficking in people are huge problems. But wildlife trafficking, so that's illegal wildlife trade, is among the top four criminal activities that happens globally. And that's because it's really lucrative. Whether you're looking at something like a Tatuaba swim bladder or the example I think everyone's mind goes to when you talk about international trade is elephant ivory. Mm -hmm. And while we have a commercial ivory ban in place, um, there's still a black market for the ivory trade. Um, And in part, that is because when you look at seized shipments, you see not just, you know, elephant ivory or tatuaba swim bladders, but oftentimes you will see them showing up with 
guns. You'll see them showing up with drugs. You'll see them showing up um, with other contraband activities. And that is because we have these criminal syndicate systems that are trafficking in all of those four main um, arenas and the, those things that are highly coveted, even though they're illegal. Okay, so th- oftentimes it's the same criminal syndicates or the same cartels that are you just said are are, are um, doing the drugs and and wildlife trade at the same time. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Tanya, hang on here for a second because I want to bring in to the conversation John Scanlon. He served as Secretary General of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, again, CITI. So he was CITI's Secretary General from 2010 to 2018. He's now CEO of the Elephant Protection Initiative Foundation and chair of the Global Initiative to End Wildlife Crime. And he joins us from Geneva, Switzerland. John Scanlon, welcome to On Point. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so tell us more um, about... Uh, how you see sort of this uh, cartel or criminal syndicate activity? Uh, how, how big of a factor is it in the what, what, in the current flow of trade in wildlife around the world? Right. Thanks. I think we need to draw a distinction between uh, legal regulated trade, and that's what CITES deals with as well. And there's around eleven billion dollars of regulated trade each year. And what we've been talking about so far today, which is wildlife trafficking, that is wildlife being traded across international borders illegally. Um, Now, CITES was set up to regulate international trade in wild animals and plants, or those that are listed under the convention, to ensure that um, that trade does not threaten the survival of the species. Now, what we've seen over the years is that there is a massive amount of wildlife trafficking, both animals and plants. And depends how you calculate it, but if you look at all wild animals and plants being trafficked, including timber and fish species, including species protected under CITES and those not protected under CITES, you're looking at a value of around $200 billion a year. But if you look at the impact on ecosystems, the World Bank says, the value of the impact of this wildlife trafficking is between $1 to $2 billion per year. And it is driven by transnational organized crime, as as Tani has indicated. Huh. Okay, so the... I'm a little confused by the numbers. Um, so you said that the uh, the overall value of the trade was $200 billion, but the impact on ecosystems was about $1 billion? Yeah, $1 to $2 trillion because... Oh, trillion. Okay. One to two trillion. I got it. Okay. Probably the Australian accent. So it's the (laughs) the billion in terms of the value of the contraband, but that's probably not the best figure to look at. You look at that, what is the environmental harm caused here? That's between one and two trillion with a T, because if you look at the impact that this trafficking has on ecosystems, including the ability to sequester carbon, including the ability to provide fresh water, the tourism opportunity, et cetera, the value of or the impact is much higher than just the value of the contraband itself. Understood. Okay. So let's just take a quick look. I appreciate your distinction uh, between the illegal and uh, legal trade here um, of uh, threatened species. Do you believe that CITES has been a success story then in the regulation of legal trade um, so so that it protects or doesn't uh, further threaten endangered species? So everything's relative. Uh, As you pointed out, the convention is 50 years old, um, adopted in Washington, D.C. on 3rd March 1973. I think we're in a much better position today 
2023 in terms of regulated wildlife trade than we would otherwise be. I think many species have benefited from this regulation, including you know elephants that you've talked about, uh, rhino, big cats, and many other species. Uh, but it's an imperfect instrument as well. There are many uh, flaws with the convention that still need to be addressed. National legislation is not good enough. The national science is not good enough. We still have old paper permits that are open to fraudulent use. And the convention was never designed to deal with transnational organized crime. Uh, that is something that didn't fit comfortably with the convention. But when I was Secretary General, we were looking at a massive industrial scale wildlife trafficking. No one was picking it up. And we used the convention to draw attention to the scale, nature and consequences of these crimes. But recognising that a 50-year-old trade-related convention was completely incapable of addressing the transnational organised crime that is driving wildlife trafficking, as uh, Barbara and Tanya have talked about in terms of the Totawaba and the implications that it has for the Fakita, that's not what CITES was designed to deal with. Mm -hmm. Transnational organised crime needs to be dealt with by the organisations and the conventions designed to tackle organised crime. So law enforcement, essentially. Law enforcement and within the UN system, it's the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. It's the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime. Um, this is where you have your best chance of tackling transnational crime, not through a trade-related convention, albeit the trade-related convention sets rules that criminals try and avoid, but it's not the right instrument and it's not the right place to tackle transnational organised crime. And that's where we need some significant reform to the international system to change the international legal framework within which we're operating. So we actually can have a concerted, coordinated global effort to bring these uh, heinous crimes to an end. Okay. So, Tanya, let me turn back to you. Um, do you see willingness, willingness, I should say, by the international community to to make those changes in CITES? I mean, I, I introdu introduced the show with a, with a note that said it didn't seem as if there's a lot of global activity right now um, desiring to do that. Is that right or wrong? I think that's right. I don't think that there is a lot of appetite to... Um to change the CITES convention text itself. I think that what John is talking to is basically an initiative in another sandbox, which I think is critically important. You know, we have these huge criminal networks. The ability to take those down is something that really could benefit from getting those criminal experts involved. But that doesn't negate the need for us to turn back to CITES and say, what can we be doing in this space to improve circumstances for a lot of different wildlife? To my mind, CITES has all the tools in the toolbox that we need. The problem is what CITES doesn't have are the resources to be able to ensure that all of the countries that are party to the agreement get all of those tools in the mm. toolbox. Okay. And that's been one of the critical failures of the CITES agreement. It's actually very well crafted. It ensures that we use the best science. It ensures that we have, you know, permitting. Um, it sets the standard for, you know, designating those criminal activities, right? We have that commercial trade ban that goes into effect. But where we really need help under CITES is where the rubber hits the road. So making sure that we have people who are, that the, the wildlife, the domestic laws are adequate to ensure that they comply with CITES, that we have people trained to enforce them, right, on yeah. the ground. That's really critical. Okay. You know what, though? Um, 
I actually, I hear what, what what both of you are saying, but I also still see this bizarre unwillingness to even do, you know, sort of what seemed to me to be no-brainer <laughs> updates to CITES, as you just outlined, Tanya. And there's a story, John, that I'd love for you to tell us, right? Because... Uh, It's so clear after the pandemic now that there are all manner of threats, not just to the endangered species themselves, but to human beings for when it comes to the legal and illegal trade of wildlife. Right. I mean, the the threat of zoonotic transfer of pandemics from animals to human. We just got a, a historic lesson in that. As far as I understand, CITES does not address pandemic risk as a reason to regulate wildlife trade. Did you got you tried to get that changed? Can you tell me the story of that and if that was successful? Yeah, so CITES was created to address the implications of international trade in wildlife from a conservation perspective, to ensure that any trade did not threaten the survival of the species. So it was about what's the conservation impact of this trade. It wasn't designed and the convention doesn't directly address the issues of the risk that such trade poses to human health through zoonotic diseases, for example, or to animal health. And the US has experienced some quite significant um, uh, implications for animal health, in particular for amphibians. Um, nor was it designed to do with things like illegal, uh, like um, um, uh, invasive species. It was designed for the, the conservation impact in the source country. So what we were saying in a in a post-COVID-19 world is that it would be valuable to amend the CITES convention to say not only do you look at whether to list a species under the convention uh, from a conservation perspective, but look to see whether a species in trade could pose a threat to human or animal health, and that when you issue a permit to authorise a trade or choose not to issue the permit, you don't just look at the conservation aspects, but you look at would this trade pose a potential risk to human health or animal health. Now, we were promoting that and we put forward specific changes that could be made to the convention text. It didn't get any traction uh, amongst the CITES parties or the large part of the CITES constituency, with some but not all. And it's because there's always been a view within the CITES community that it likes the particular rather narrow focus of the convention, which is to look at species listed under the convention and whether or not uh, international trade is going to uh, threaten the survival of that species, looking at it from a, a conservation perspective. But this and baffles they prefer but John, to stay can, there. Yeah, can I just jump in here for a second? It baffles me, though, because there's a great deal of overlap between the two, right? I'm thinking of the pangolin, for example, which people, you know, like there may be some zoonotic transfer from the pangolin, and at the same time, we're wiping them out everywhere. So why, why could you not? There's no traction, really? I mean, that surprises me, John. No, there was no traction. And for example, the horseshoe bat is not listed under CITES, uh, whereas you think international trade and the horseshoe bat from a human animal health perspective is something you'd want to keep an eye on. But it's quite conservative in that sense. It's a 50-year-old trade-related convention. It has a particular constituency, but there's more than one route to home. So we have redirected our effort to the pandemics instrument being negotiated under the World Health Organization, and that's where we are getting a lot of traction. Okay. Well, John Scanlon uh, served as Secretary General of CITES from 2010 to 2018. Hang on here for with us for just a second, John. And Tanya Sanrib at the uh, Center for Biological Diversity. Hold on as well. A lot more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a quick heads up for a show we're working on next week. We're going to be talking about smartphones in school classrooms because a bunch of states in the past year have actually passed laws that ban smartphones from going into classrooms uh, in K-12 through schools. So we're not talking like a device-free classroom because, of course, there's still like iPads and computers, but kids' phones that they bring from home banned from classrooms. Florida's about to be next. Their smartphone classroom ban kicks in in July. So students, teachers, parents, we really want to hear from you. What do you think or what what do you see the impact of smartphones that kids bring from home has been in the classroom? What impact has it had on learning? Do you think banning smartphones from the classroom is a good idea? Is it feasible? We really want to hear your stories about this. So you can send us one over the OnPoint VoxPop app if it's not on your phone already. And yes, I understand the irony of asking you to use a smartphone to send us a message about the uh, smartphone ban in classrooms. But be that as it may, if the VoxPop app is not on your phone, search for it wherever you get your apps. Just look for OnPoint VoxPop. Or you can also call us at 617-353-353. 0683. So really want to get your stories about what you think uh, regarding the uh, the rising number of states that are moving to ban smartphones in K-12 through classrooms. Today, we are talking about CITES, the international agreement created 50 years ago to regulate the trade of threatened species around the world, and whether CITES, uh, a half century later, is in dire need of updating And if so, why that isn't happening. So let's take a moment to talk a little bit about how, even though CITES may be rather uh, long in the tooth, I might say, there still can be successes within the framework of the 50-year-old agreement. Fred Berkovich is a comparative wildlife biologist who spent 20 years studying giraffes. The giraffe populations have declined by 40% over the last three decades, and one driver of that is the international trade in giraffe body parts. One of the things that's done with giraffe after they're killed is that um, taxonomists will stuff their neck in their head and make a trophy out of it. And you can buy one of those in the United States for like six, $7,000. You can adorn your living room with the neck and the head of a giraffe. It may or may not have been killed legally, but people do import that. A lot of the bones are carved into knife handles that go to Saudi Arabia. The skin is also made not just into head, but they make things like chairs, 
They make jackets, cowboy boots. Well, at a 2019 CITES conference in Geneva, six African nations, Central African Republic, Chad, Kenya, Mali, Niger, and Senegal, put forth a proposal that would add giraffes to one of the appendices of the CITES agreement. Now, that wouldn't prohibit international trade in giraffes or their products, but it, it would ensure that the trade was legal. But getting the giraffes added wasn't a slam dunk because many other Southern African countries were not in favor of the proposal. Fred Berkovich made it his mission to convince countries to vote in favor. And he remembers the moment when he had a rare chance to speak to the entire assembly. What happened was these six countries, they get a chance to talk about why it should be listed. So they approached the chair in advance. And one of them said, Central African Republican said, I want to cede my three minutes to this giraffe expert who's here. So let Fred Berkovich talk for three minutes on the biology of giraffe and the conservation and why countries should support it. So the chair agreed. So then when the time came for proposal five, then it's introduced, then the chair recognizes the honorable delegate from the Central African Republic and the honorable delegate says, with all your permission, chair, um, I would cede my time to this giraffe expert, Fred Berkovich, and he'll spend the next three minutes uh, explaining why. And then the chair says, okay, Go ahead. Berkovich explained that giraffes should be listed because there was documented illegal transboundary trade and that giraffes essentially have zero population growth and are at risk of extinction. Listing them on CITES, he says, was basically a no-brainer. And the closing line, in effect, is that we lose absolutely nothing by listing them. All listing does is says we're going to monitor the extent to which there's an illegal killing and international trafficking of giraffe. On the other hand, not listing them opens the door to more poaching, bigger demand actually for giraffe because now the countries know, hey, they're not listed. The international community decided that it's not important to list them, which means we can even kill more. Well, the vote finally came in, and 83% of countries voted for listing the giraffe in Appendix 2 of CITES. Berkovich says he didn't do it completely alone. He had others there to give him feedback, but it is a proud moment for him. So there was a whole group of people, but I can tell you it's one of the proudest moments in my background. Even though I didn't work by myself, it was the epitome of how one person can make a difference. The fact that I was a single person And I had three minutes to convince 180 delegations to do something. And in the end, they voted 83% in favor of what I said. I thought, boy, I must have done something right here. Well, that's Fred Berkovich, comparative wildlife biologist. So Tanya and John, uh, there still can be successes even within the half-century-old framework of CITES. We wanted to, to hear Berkovich's story in order to note that. But I'm still struck by how different the world is now, uh, geopolitically, than it was in 1973. And this brings us back to something you were saying earlier, Tanya, about the consumer countries. For example, China today is quite different from China in 1973. So is it things like, you know, China's um, uh, rising power, its economic power, uh, its, its even cultural and geopolitical power? Is that one of the things that uh, prevents 
there from being a lot of global will to give CITES the kind of teeth it needs to really be super effective in the 21st century? I think that's a part of the problem, but I think we need to take a step further back and look at all of the consumer countries. You know, when we talk about international wildlife trade, for us in the United States, we tend to think of, of China, we tend to think of Africa, but we ignore our own role in the wildlife trade. And so, for example, with giraffes, the U.S. is a major importer of giraffe bone for gun and knife handles. We import all sorts of giraffe products from, you know, pillows made out of giraffe skin, um, giraffe bone carvings, sometimes actually of giraffes themselves. U.S. consumers are very ignorant about the role that they play in the international wildlife trade and fueling demand for species that is leading them down the path of extinction. And that's one of the big problems that we have at CITES is so much of the focus is on where animals are coming out of the wild. So those producing countries and not enough attention is being paid, yes, to China, but also to the United States, to the EU and to Japan. We tend to be those tend to be the four biggest consumer countries. Okay. Okay. John, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, again, we have to draw a distinction between legal regulated trade and illegal trade or wildlife trafficking, because the giraffe went on to Appendix 2, which means it can lawfully be traded. But you have to get from the management authority a permit which certifies that it's been legally obtained and that harvesting that number of animals or plants, in this case an animal, would not be detrimental to the survival of the species. So that is about well-regulated trade. It doesn't stop the trade. It says now it's under regulatory regime and you have to report on those trades. So I think that legal regulated trade needs to be distinguished from wildlife trafficking. And there is a database within CITES. All CITES parties every year have to report. They're obliged to report on all trade transactions. And there's well over a million trade transactions reported under the convention every year, and they go into a database. That's about legal trade, or mm -hmm. that should be legal. You've got wildlife trafficking, and the UN Office of Drugs and Crime says 6,000 CITES-listed species are found in illegal trade every year across every continent, mm. every continent, including uh, in uh, North and South America. So uh, but then it says there are millions of species not regulated under CITES that are also found uh, in illegal trade. So I think we just have to disaggregate this a little bit from legal trade, and the giraffe can lawfully be traded with the right permits because it's on Appendix 2, and wildlife trafficking, which is totally unlawful. Okay, but so let me then, let's stick with the uh, analysis on the legal trade for just a second, because... Um, one of the truths about uh, any sort of international agreement is that often, most often, the the enforcement of those agreements and the execution of those agreements um, have to happen, obviously, internally within the, the various member states. We rely on ourselves in the United States and on other countries to do the right thing. But I also understand that, you know, for the resources available within any country, even even the United States, for uh, the kind of uh, technology, the kind of manpower that you need to even monitor the legal trade is often a couple of guys in the back of an airport that might see half a million people pass through every year. I mean, uh, is the oversight of the legal trade adequate, John? No. So we've got some real weaknesses there. Um, a number of countries, about half countries, still don't have legislation that fully meets the requirements of the convention. The ability to issue permits through management authorities in many countries is weak. 
And the science behind doing what's called the non-detriment finding or the scientific finding that this this is a um, you know this is a harvest that won't threaten the survival. That science is weak in many places. And for example, if you look at uh, the sharks, you know the listing of sharks under CITES is a success story. We've gone from almost none in 2010 to over 200 now. But it's one thing to list and another thing to implement the listing. And that's where the capacity to issue permits, do the science, is weak. And we have a paper permitting system, which is a 50-year-old paper permitting system that's open to fraudulent use and corruption, whereas in 2023, we should have a fully automated system. But there are a lot of weaknesses there. And we have to, as you have just done, distinguish between bringing something under the trade controls of the convention and being able to effectively implement it. And there's a big gap there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Tanya, um, we are, it seems to me that uh, there's little doubt that some species could still uh, fall into extinction even though they are uh, ostensibly protected by CITES. Um, Given that that's the case, if you could make changes to CITES, what would they be? What would you want them to be? Or is that just the wrong way of looking at it? Should we be trying to come up with entirely new agreements? I actually think um, there's a third option that would work wonderfully, and that is to ensure that we get the resources and the capacity to fully implement the CITES Convention as it's written. I I see the biggest flaw is that it doesn't meet its mandate because of the lack of resources and capacity. Um, You know, one key example is... um, you know, we are in the midst of a heart-wrenching biodiversity crisis. UN scientists have said that we stand to lose a million species, many in the coming decades, unless we change business as usual. Scientists have documented that CITES is decades behind in providing meaningful protection to probably hundreds, if not thousands, of species that face extinction. So those are species that are maybe affected by trade. Um And yet we've seen, you know, this tenfold increase since 1975 in wildlife trade since CITES entered into force. What we need is the resources to go to these countries who have agreed to do the work of CITES to ensure that, again, that all those tools they have in the toolbox can be fully used. Um, You know, we were just talking about you have new listings of sharks. We had a a phenomenal number of turtle species that got listed at the last um, CITES meeting. And you need the resources to be able to understand what's happening with those populations to ensure that the regulated trade, when it is a regulated trade, isn't detrimental to the survival of the species. And then simultaneously, you also need those resources when you have these commercial trade bans, as you were noting, at the ports, at the borders, to ensure that you're not allowing things to leave your country that shouldn't be leaving. And the same thing needs to happen to those importing countries to ensure that they're not bringing in Mm. species that have been put on that do not playlist. Okay. So, John, I'm going to give you the last word here today. We've just got a couple of minutes left here because I definitely hear both of you as saying um, maybe updating CITES itself would is either unnecessary or, kind, or quite frankly, it's just not going to happen because there isn't enough international will. And then, John, you also mentioned that we have to keep distinguishing legal from the, from the illegal trade. But the illegal trade requires, you know, an increase in um, law enforcement type agreements around the world. So then, what you know, if 
We couldn't even get interest around um, improving tracking systems or the kind of resources that Tanya was talking about after the global pandemic. What would it take for the CITES parties, uh, country, party countries to say, no, we are going to actually increase the very types of resources that Tanya is talking about? Thanks. And to tackle these issues, we have to look both within CITES and outside of CITES. So if we look at the public health risk of zoonotic uh, diseases, we're going to look outside CITES. And the new pandemics instrument being uh, negotiated under the World Health Organization is where we're going to look to for that. And we have some uh, encouraging news in that regard. If we look at well-regulated wildlife trade, the legal trade, CITES does have all the tools for that, and we need a scaled-up investment in that. Uh, because listing a species under this convention is not enough. You have to implement it. And we have a big funding gap there in terms of being able to do that effectively. When it comes to wildlife trafficking, CITES is the wrong instrument. It is not designed to tackle transnational organized crime or wildlife trafficking. It's designed to regulate wildlife trade. And in that regard, we need a new global international instrument to prevent and combat wildlife trafficking, we can do it under the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. The presidents of Angola, of Costa Rica, of Gabon and Malawi have called for it. And it's now in the UN being considered. This is what we need on the wildlife trafficking side. So I disaggregate it and look at it across those three pillars. If we push all three, we'll get there in the end. Well, from what I've heard today from both of you, there are many species out there whose survival depends on it. So John Scanlon, who served as Secretary General of CITES from 2010 to 2018 and is now CEO of the Elephant Protection Initiative Foundation and chair of the Global Initiative to End Wildlife Crime. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. And Tanya Sanrib at the Center for Biological Diversity with us from Seattle. Tanya, thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you. This is On Point.